1: Today in the Loopcast, I have uh, Shannon Foley Martinez, or Foley Martinez, excuse me, and we're discussing the, the idea and the topic of talking to people and bringing them out of extremism or radicalism or whatever you want to call it. One of the big reasons why I wanted to do this show is that I struggle a lot with kind of talking to people that would be you would consider extreme or hold extreme ideas. So it doesn't necessarily mean Neo Nazis or neo fascists or Klansmen. It could also mean people who have uh, taken on conspiratorial views, like QAnon or anti-vaccine uh, and stuff like that. And I I have found myself to really struggle with it, mostly because my my personal and professional sort of inclination is to what you would call impose cost. Right? You you know this idea of going out and you know. You know either doxing or helping people you know you know reveal identities and kind of imposing social cost now i i have found that since 2016 and especially post 2017 with q taking off that methodology has kind of hit a wall right so it is obvious you know that that has some use but then when you expand the base of extremism when a lot more people are believing in QAnon. A lot more people are anti-vax, right? They don't necessarily, aren't violent or aren't going to prone themselves to huge acts of violence. How do you you work with that? How do you, what do you do there? And I was really intrigued by Shannon's story by she cited in one of our previous guests book. And I thought, you know, it's a conversation that we can all kind of listen to Benefit from and and grow from. So, please welcome my guest, Shannon. How are you?
0: I am twenty twenty one. <laughs> I kind you. of have stopped answering that question because I'm just like I don't know how to, to, to give like a brief answer to that. <laughs> I'm just kind of like I don't know. I'm some good, some bad. It's an existential dread.
1: <laughs> Ex- existential dread is a that's a good way to answer, it actually. <laughs> um.
0: But thank you so much for for having me. I, Super! Look forward to hanging out with you for for a while. I just got back from the D.C. area, and just so spent ten hours uh, in the car with my kids yesterday. So I'm <laughs> excited to talk to an adult. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man! So something that that I'm really intrigued with is your your origin story and your kind of your journey into extremism, and then your journey out of it, because I think on the loop cast, we've had, you know, we, we've been able to describe people's stories, right, but it never had a, somebody actually recount their narrative and recount their personal narrative of kind of, you know, where they started, and then where they ended up, so it, it you know, if you're comfortable with it, you know, walk us through, you know, that journey for us.
0: Sure, I will do a very, brief synopsis and like cuz there's plenty of stuff out there available that's like more in depth you know there's videos and articles and and all kinds of stuff out there so like if anybody wants to know more detail like you can just google me and, and stuff will and stuff will pop up which is super fun when i'm like hanging out at bars just <laughs> dude just google me <laughs> and they're like what even is what am i looking at but so, the origin story when a man loves a woman, and sometimes <laughs> if a man loves me, no, I'm kidding That <laughs> I grew up in a family where I always felt like I didn't really belong. I felt like from my very earliest memories that I was like the black sheep in my family i Grew up in a two-parent household. My parents are still married. Um, they've been married for over fifty years. I had I have one brother who is a couple years older than me. We grew up in the the first part of my childhood out just outside of Philadelphia, and from the outside, my family looked really idyllic. Like it looked very much like you know the late 1970s early 1980s you know upwardly mobile middle American dream like very typified some when I'm a lot of times when I'm talking to high schoolers you know describing my childhood I'm like it, it was kind of like I grew up on this set of stranger things but like without <laughs> without the demigorgons <laughs> and, and stuff that there were a bunch of kids in my neighborhood that you know it's like if you could not if you were willing to knock on enough doors, you could always find someone to play with. If not, there was like a woods behind our house where I, I actually like spent a lot of time. I I was in, you know, a bunch of like gifted classes and I was a championship athlete. I was a gymnast. I was a diver. I was a swimmer. I was a pitcher in softball. I played, I also played shortstop. I played midfielder, both indoor and outdoor soccer. So like, I mean, I was like, I was really involved in like a lot of stuff. I like talking about that stuff because there is a a perception that we have that people who end up embracing overt white supremacy or, you know, violence-based worldviews or whatever, that they're just like ignorant and, um you know, like we have preconceived notions about their intelligence about, you know, well, clearly like everything in their life was like super bad or whatever. But on the inside of my household, things were incredibly dysfunctional that neither of my parents were addicts, but they both came from families where there was addiction. So there was a lot of like codependency stuff. It was also, I mean, it was also the late 70s, you know, 70s and 80s, like that, that there were just, you know, like that there were cultural norms that had really shifted. And, you know, my parents didn't have the skill set at that time to, to parent me the way that I needed to be parented. I spent a lot of my childhood in trouble <laughs> for like not doing homework and <clears throat> all kinds of stuff, <laughs> all kinds of stuff, you know, like I, but I came back. I just came wired that way. Like I came wired wanting, like, I, I, I needed to understand why things were the way that they were and how they connected together. And, you know, it's like, well, why do I have to do homework if I can get A's on your tests? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And I won't give my assent to it. Like, I will refuse, <laughs> refuse to do that. But I always really wanted to understand, like, how things fit together. So that was something that was like a constant source of abrasion in my family. Because I was like, well, why are the rules what they are? Right like i wanted I really wanted to know, and like if it made sense, I would give my assent to it, but if it didn't make sense, then I just would not do that but i I had all this other stuff going on, so that there were places in my life where you know where i I felt like I belonged, I had you know measures of success that I could feel, where i you know, in my athletics and at school and with friends and stuff, I had other adults in my life that. I felt deeply connected to, I had some very close relationships with several of my coaches over my lifetime that, you know, that, that were super meaningful to me. And just like other kids, parents and and stuff like that. So when I was 11, we moved, my dad came home from work and sat us all down at the kitchen table and let us know that we were going to move from where we were living just outside of Philly to rural Southern Michigan, just North of Toledo, Ohio. And I, like, I was 11 at the time and I didn't, (laughs) all right, (laughs) one of the big, one of the bigger kids is taking the littlest one out. Of course, now the dog is probably going to start barking because she will want to go out too, but we'll deal with that. (laughs) We'll deal with that as it comes. But I, when we moved, so I was 11 and I, you know, like, and now I know that 11 is actually like a very, uh, a very fragile time so like having big changes in your life like as you are entering into adolescence that it's incredibly difficult the movie inside out <laughs> they they picked this like 11 year old as the main character specifically for that <laughs> for that reason because like that is like that is particularly a, a really difficult time for any sort of like major transition life transition stuff but when we got there like i didn't listen to the same music as everyone else. I didn't have the same hair. I didn't wear the same clothes. And in fact, like my Philly accent was so strong that like, that the kids, there were like, are you from England? (laughs) Like they thought I was from another country because, you know, because I just wanted a glass of water. (laughs) But the sense of not belonging expanded like out into the greater world for me at that point that there was this sense now in which I really was like an outsider. And while I was there, like I did make some friends, but like they had all been friends their whole lives. So it wasn't the same sort of connection that they all had with each other. I, and I even made like some, some close friends that are still, that are now like part of my life, but it wasn't, it didn't feel the same to me as the friendships that they all had with one another. And I am at the same time, you know, it's like, I was still playing sports and stuff, but I, you know, it's like, I'm coming into the beginning of adolescence. I go into middle school, you know, there's all of the crazy like difficulties of just middle school time in general. And so part of the work of adolescence, especially early adolescence is beginning to like posit an identity, like your chosen identity in the world and not just like accepting like the 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 identity that your family has given to you or whatever. And so because I was coming at this feeling like such an outsider, I really gravitated towards like counterculture and like subcultures as these places where I was going to begin kind of like trying on identities. And the first one was actually like 1960s like anti-war counterculture. I read a lot of books and you know like you know 60s music and and stuff like that. Eventually that would end up with me like hanging out with a bunch of skateboarders and you know skateboarding culture and through that like into like the punk rock scene and listening to a bunch of punk rock music and going to shows and you know, and stuff like that. And like, that was a good fit for me that it was just like, you know, it's like nobody, none of us belong anywhere. So we'll all just like belong together, right? Like the 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 misfits, can all just, you know, we can be the island of misfit toys or whatever. And then when it was time for me to start high school, I had the choice of either carrying on at the public school where I was going for middle school or going to private school in Toledo inexplicably, there's like a whole bunch of like private Catholic schools in Toledo, high schools in Toledo. And my brother had already chosen to go to one of these schools.
1: And it's like, you know, I
0: mean, here I'm, you know, 13, 14 years old or whatever. It's like, there's this part of me, like, I still want to make my parents proud of me. Right. Like, I still want to do the right things. I'm still like, yeah, I want to go to college and I want to go to college. I want to make them proud or whatever. And so I decided to to one of these private schools. And I also kind of thought like in the back of my mind that like, oh, well, like everybody will be starting, you know, it's like, so maybe it'll be easier to like make friends and stuff. But it turned out like there were all these like feeder private schools where they had all. So I ended up going to this high school and one at the time there was a law that if you went to school, high school in Ohio, but you lived out of state, you couldn't play sports. And it was like primarily a law, like targeting like football in southern Ohio and people recruiting from like Kentucky and stuff. So I go into high school now losing something that was an integral and crucially important like part of my life that like even, you know, even as I was like getting into like punk rock, stuff and everything, it was like, I still was a swimmer. I still like, I was still like winning championships and, and things like that. And so now this, like this last vestige of, of everything is gone. And it was also the last, like the last meaningful, like adult relationships that I had in my life because, you know, my coaches were for me, like very, you know, a very important part um, of my life to this point. And so I go to high school and it's fine, you know, like I'm doing all right. And then in the spring of my freshman year, I ended up going to a party where, you know, it's like I lied to my parents about where I was going. You know, I was like, I'm going to so-and-so's house, which I did. And then we summarily left and went to this party. And then at this party, I, by the end of the night, I was raped by two men. And when I woke up the next day, I, I wasn't, you know, I was like, did that even happen? And then I was like, okay, yeah, I know that really happened. And then my very next thought was like that there's no way in hell I could tell my parents that I knew that they would be more angry that I had lied about where I was and that I had been drinking at this party than they would be upset that I had just been sexually assaulted. And so I think that there was this like protective part of me that was like, you cannot, like you, you, this is, is enough trauma. You don't need like extra victim blaming. So I took all of that and shoved it, you know, that trauma completely unprocessed, like down. And, you know, as we know, like unprocessed trauma doesn't dissipate, it festers. And in my case, the main way that that festered was just a deep self-loathing and, you know, like I, I, and, and rage, like I wanted to hurt myself, which I did. I wanted to hurt anything and anyone that came, that I came in contact with. The angriest people in the periphery of where I hung out were the neo-Nazi white power skinheads that were like at all the punk shows and everything. And I really think that like the rage within me resonated with the rage that they displayed. And it was also a place where like, I felt like an absolute piece of shit. Like I felt completely worthless that it was like, it was a place where I could go that I didn't need to be any good. Like me just being me and having and and being not just willing but wanting to like fight everyone and like do violence or whatever like that was enough that there are some people out there who talk about like, Oh, if I just, you know, if a baseball coach had come along or, you know, it's like, if there was like some kind of positive thing that had come along, but that was not the case for me because I felt so worthless. Like I needed a place where I didn't have to be or feel morally good or have any worth or value like to be part of it. And so for me, I started like hanging out with them and started listening to like white power music and reading some of the like stuff that was out there learning some of the the lingo and things like that like in my case cuz this is all like before the internet this is like the late 80s that I built like a physical echo chamber around myself, which I would more and more deeply entrench into over like the next four and a half years and would move like all over the place and live with different like cells of <clears throat> of white supremacists and violent, you know, violent and overt white supremacists. And then eventually I ended up with like not anywhere to go. So I I was going out with a guy who was in the army um, who was a skinhead and like, so super, not a new like problem or phenomenon, probably like 30 of my contacts while I was in the movements came directly from like military active duty military. So it's very much not a new uh, problem, but I was going out with this guy and I ended up like not having a place to live. And very luckily for me, his mom said, that I, that I could go live with her and her three younger sons. And so I hopped on a bus and went to Texas to go live with them. She did not know like what, you know, what our beliefs were, like what, what we were up to. But still at the time, it's like, if I saw me on my doorstep, I would kind of be like, I, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know that I'm going to let you in. (laughs) I don't know that this is a good idea. But luckily for me, she did let me in. And immediately upon walking in that door, several things happen that my echo chamber is now broken, right? Like I am not immersing myself all day, every day with people who believe and see the world exactly how I do. And to normalize that worldview, there are, you know, kids in this household where it's like, you know, I don't know. It's like, I didn't want them to be exposed to the stuff that I was. So there's this sort of, you know, this sort of, under like under handed like realization that like what I'm doing isn't good, right? But it wasn't, you know, it didn't like smack me in the face and just be like, this is bad or whatever. It's kind of like, okay, well, if I don't want them to like be part of this, like there's some there's something there that maybe I need to examine. And like and I had a place, like my need set was like genuinely being met. Like I genuinely had a place that I belonged that like they all I had to do was like do the dishes and help babysit sometime or whatever. Like I didn't have to prove myself or worth through like violence or willingness to use violence or conflict or or anything like that and then that mom too like also began to connect me with um ideas of future that like while I was immersed in all of this stuff like I didn't think of my future at all like I didn't think I would have a future I didn't like my brain just didn't process that way at all then I thought in terms of future of the movement future of you know what we you know the ethno state, or, you know, or whatever, or like martyrdom, but I didn't think about, you know, college and, like, and making babies other than like for the movement or whatever, you know, like it was not, I didn't think that way. And so she really connected me with this idea of future and like tangibly connected me to resources that I would need in order to like start making that happen. So like, not just being like you should go to college but like you should go to college and to do that like you're gonna need to like write to some schools because again before the internet and like so here let's go to the library let's find out like the their addresses here's a stamp i'm gonna put this in the mailbox for you you need to take your sat here's here's a number two pencil i'm gonna put it in your hand i'm gonna put you in my car i'm gonna take you to that test and so it was Pro. it was in that, that I began to like disaffiliate where it wasn't like, I didn't like suddenly one day, like denounce or whatever. It was just like over the course of probably about four or five months, like I was just, as this is all happening all at the same time, that it was just like, you know, that I'm starting to think like, okay, like, is this really what I want to do? Is this, do I really believe this? Like I I don't know. I've told this story before where it's just like, I've super loved Billy Bragg and you know, it's like, how can I love this music so much? And it's like completely antithetical to like what I'm spewing out. Like, how can I cry at the stars and like, and also just be so vile in the world, right? Like how can my life be this thing that is like the antithesis of, of, Beauty and holding those two things, and like, what do I want to move forward? And so, I, you know, it's like I started growing my hair out. I quit really like hanging out with anybody from, you know, that I knew. Eventually, the guy I was seeing came home from the army. And by that point, like, I was, I was pretty like disaffiliated. And I was like, you know, I don't think I want to do this anymore. He's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And like, he also just like was, I guess, done or whatever. I don't know. And so, that was kind of my exit way. But Lest like there be confusion, it was like, I still didn't like, I didn't, I wasn't okay. Like all of the stuff that had gotten me there. And then in addition, like the shame of what, of the things I had done and like what I gave my assent to, like that was all there unprocessed, not even knowing that I had to process that at all there, you know, the, that there's, you know perpetrator induced trauma too. Like we know like from war stories and stuff like that, like it's not just the things that happen to you that create trauma, that it's also things that you do, right? Like so many um, troops that their PTSD often focuses on the things that they've done while they were. And so like that that was very true for me as well. But I, again, like I didn't know that. And I still didn't have like healthy emotional and communication skills and stuff. But I eventually would end up like moving back home with my parents. And I went to university for a couple years, but like my, again, like my relationships were a disaster maintaining the, you know, like I, I ended up having two babies after I left, I had two babies over the course of a couple of years that i who I placed up for adoption, you know, cause I was just like, Oh my God, like I'm poison. Like, no, I cannot like bring any like child into my life. And eventually at the age of 23, I would have my first baby who I would keep my oldest son who just turned 24 earlier this year. And that for me was really kind of like the beginning of like, okay, like, what, how do I cultivate human beings who thrive? Like how, what do I have to do to ensure that my kids will never grow up and be like me? Like how, what do I have to do? What does, how do I raise them so that they will never look to hate or violence as a viable expression of anything like happening in their lives? And so that has been my journey for the last 24 years is like living that out. I mean, and now like I have, (laughs) i have eight kids like all the way from 24 down to to five like (laughs) i'm like the world's worst like contraception user or whatever like i even had my five-year-old like i I even i had surgery to not have any more babies and still got pregnant so (laughs) apparently the universe like needed needed you know me to, to 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 do that. <laughs> I don't know. Like, you get what you need, not necessarily, you know, not, not necessarily what you envision. And from all of that, like, one of the things when I became a mom, I was just like, okay, because I had these babies who I placed up for adoption, and because, like, I was a Nazi, I never wanted my kids to, like, find out that stuff, like, by accident. And so I really embraced this policy of really of, like, radical honesty about stuff and just being willing to like reveal myself and not, you know, not hide from my past and and stuff like that. And then because of that, it turned out that it created an environment where people felt safe to share their worst things they had ever done and the worst things that had ever happened to them that that they often felt safe to share that with me. So very organically in my life, did I start having conversations where people were like, oh, well, my cousin or like, oh, yeah, I was like part of this thing or whatever. And it would only be like maybe like 2016 or whatever, where I kind of started doing this in like a more like, official kind of way where you know where it was just like for obvious reasons like the world kind of changed a whole lot in like 2016 and stuff and then certainly after charlottesville everything completely like amplified and you know and i don't know like for me like that that was you know i've been way too busy to ever even respond to everyone that reaches out to me at this point since then but I will stop there that was that was not as short as I had intended (laughs) but hopefully that gives gives like a good like overview
1: no that was perfect I I maybe want to start exploring this idea of of you know trauma and isolation you know and then using that initial trauma to you know regain agency In, in your view like is that, you know, the specific trauma might be, is, is obviously different from case to case, but how much of the, you know, does that extend to, you know, driving people towards extremism? Is it, is, I mean, is trauma and then trying to regain that agency and control over their own life is, is kind of at the center point or, you know, and then how do we bring in this idea of isolation and trying to connect to people?
0: So I, <clears throat> that could, this could be its whole own shit. <laughs> this is, this is kind of my jam right here. So I, I, it is my belief that like beyond our, like, you know, physical, you know, physical basic needs that all human beings have the same essential needs that, that we all need to feel truly seen and truly heard. And <clears throat> we all need to, um, feel loved and able to give love right that the love that we have for other people is there like is is effective and felt by other people and that we all need to have a meaningful connection a meaningful and empowered connection with something greater than ourselves and if any of those essential needs are fractured attacked unmet that all kinds of things happen where people look to either cope with the fact that those needs are being attacked, fractured, or unmet, or as the closest substitute that they can get, right? There was a study from La- I think it was last year. I think it came out last year by Pete Simi and Kathleen Blee, in which they looked at something called ACE score. So ACE scores are at is short for adverse childhood experiences. And the basic premise of some of the ACE score studies is it looks at childhood traumas. they the initial study had like a questionnaire of like 10 things. They looked at like, as people had higher ACE scores, that they had all these like less than optimal, a much higher chance of having all these like less than optimal outcomes. And it's everything from physical health to being more likely to be involved in intimate partner violence, whether as a perpetrator or as a victim, more likely to like end up in jail, you know, more likely to have like chronic health problems. Like, So there's, so the, the more adverse childhood experiences, the more layers of trauma that somebody has, particularly in their youth, the more and more problematic, the outcomes of their life are. So for me, and so back to this study, they looked at the, they looked at people who had let, I think people who had left and they found like, it was like a, I think it was like 80% of people who had been involved in in like violence-based worldviews like had a scores of four or higher. Which to me, like anecdotally, for me, everyone I have ever mentored as they have left has had multitudinous layers of trauma in their life. Part of the difficulty is that like it is often incredibly hard for us to identify things that have happened to us as toxically traumatic to us. For me, I, even if somebody had asked me when I was maybe like 17 years old, like, hey, were you raped or whatever? Like, I don't know that I would have been able to say yes, because the story I told myself was simply that I had lost my virginity to two men at a party when I was 15 years old. Like, I didn't identify what had happened to me as traumatic. And I think that that's very true. And also there's this idea of complex PTSD, this complex trauma where it's my household was not, you know, like we got, I got spanked and stuff like that, but it was like I didn't, I didn't like get beaten, but it was incredibly dysfunctional and left me feeling like, really alienated, emotionally alienated. Like I was super inconvenient. And like the way that I came wired was really inconvenient. Like I still struggle to this day, feeling like I was even like made for this world. Like, I feel like I, I just, I, I, it's something that I continue to like struggle with, but that there's, that there's a growing body of knowledge and evidence about this complex trauma that, that we have, where it's like anytime, like children, like for an extended period of time, don't feel safe and they don't have those essential needs met, like predictably and, and things like that. And of course, like, that's like, you know, I, I had no idea about any of that until just a few years. All right? Like, and which transformed my, my world and my level of healing for me. Definitely. There are all of these different kinds of trauma and the interaction with that. And so for me, it's like, I really wish that like violence, because to me, it's like, I'm, people are extreme about all kinds of stuff. Like, I don't know. I don't know that it necessarily matters that people are extreme about things other than it's not a healthy way to be, you know, like in in personal health, because it's a risk res- it, because it is usually a, a response to trauma which I which I will talk about more here in a second um but for me it's like the violence right like violence is what the problem is like dehumanization of others and violence like those are the problems like you know I might not want to like go to a party and hang out with like people that are like super militant you know like vegans or crossfitters or something just because like i find talking about that tedious <laughs> in the, in the way when people are like super extreme about what they're doing but like they're not doing harm to anyone right like i mean there's no there's no violence that or dehumanization that is like part and parcel of those things that they're doing right so for me it's not necessarily extremism that is the problem with the violence and so i would actually like to see that trying to like figure out study wise or whatever that one of the less than optimal outcomes that people who have you know, high ACE score numbers or, you know, multitudinous layers of trauma, that one of those less than optimal outcomes is embracing violence and dehumanization as as a, a worldview. But one of the things, which I said I would come back to, is that, like, if you look, if you think about trauma and how, like, it's your brain trying to keep you alive, right? Like, so you have had something that feels threatening to you in a very catastrophic way. If you are not able to, like, synthesize that experience in a holistic way, that your brain takes that experience and is like makes you hyper alert so that that doesn't happen to you again. And it tries to shortcut threat detection, right? So like a healthy brain can look at a dog and say, okay, that dog is wagging its tail, is just kind of like playing around. Okay, like that dog's okay. Can look at a dog and be like, okay, its teeth are bared, like its hackles are up. That dog is a threat it can discern the difference and that there's layers of complexity a brain on trauma will look at a dog and just be like that's a threat like I'm afraid of all dogs and it can't like it can't process the difference between the wagging tail dog and the the teeth bared dog just all dogs are threats I'm just afraid of all dogs and that is like a very simplistic uh, (laughs) simplistic example but if you think about that and you think about people who have like, mul- like multitudinous layers of trauma, that their brains are trying to keep them alive. And so your their brains are trying to make simple the work of understanding why the world feels like a dangerous and threatening place all the time. And it becomes incredibly easy to latch onto very like easy to hold on to explanations of others like just categoric categorically like looking at groups of people as others especially if those others are like easily identifiable or easily groupable in some way you know according to like you know their skin color or their religion or you know or you know like whatever and you know and just looking, you know, utilizing those groups of others to as explanations for why the world feels like a dangerous and threatening place all of the time. And so it's incredibly easy. And I think most of us probably have an experience of othering, whether it's, you know, drivers from a state that isn't ours or whatever, or, you know, another like fans of like a sports team that is like, that that's the rivalry of the sports team we like or whatever. But you know, like that there that we definitely have this like this tendency to to do this. But living dogmatically and according to like dogmatic worldviews is a shortcut for the complexity that we need to live in if we are going to live a robustly healthy life emotionally and mentally and you know sort of like spiritual life or whatever that we have to embrace complexity like eschew simplicity completely in how we look at the world and approach the world and you know absolutely embrace complexity but there's comfort in, in dogmatic worldviews, right? Like, you don't, if you live according to like, you know, a belief system that is externally imposed, that is like you don't have to go, do all of the decision-making of like, is this a good or bad moral act? Like, is this, how is what I'm going to do affect other people? To just be like, oh, well, according to my, you know, dogmatic belief system, I know who is bad. I know what is bad. I know exactly how to act given any circumstance or whatever, I don't have to do that intellectual and emotional labor of figuring that out. So like I super duper understand the draw. There's, I don't know, some, some, some <laughs> conflict about drinking a soda. I don't know. And, um, And so, you know, traumatized brains in particular, I believe are incredibly, incredibly susceptible to really latching onto these sort of like dogmatic worldviews, particularly because for people who have all this like unprocessed trauma, the entire world feels like a dangerous and threatening place all of the time. And so latching onto worldviews that specifically tell you why And who is to blame for why you feel like the world is a dangerous and threatening place all the time is, you know, like I understand how like just how seductive that is, particularly if you don't know that you have a bunch of trauma you need to deal with.
1: That's really interesting. I I want to transition to your work and and what you do, but I kind of want to start at the end. And that end is, you know, what does recovery from extremism look like? And, you know, wh- when I was writing out that question, I, I had a debate with myself and that debate was, is recovery even the right word, right? So is, is rehabilitation a better word? You know, how do you even characterize the, the sort of end state of getting somebody out of that extremist mindset and into a healthier a healthier state?
0: I, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, the like government term of du jour right now is, you know, like re rehabilitation and reintegration or, you know, or whatever. But I mean, that they, they change the terms that they use all the time. Because, and part of the reason is that it's difficult, you know, like words do actually mean stuff and it's difficult to find the right word for a lot of the stuff that we're talking, you know, like that we're talking about. Cause like, I don't think, you know, you're, like deratting or what, like, I'm just like, whatever, dude, I don't know. Like now, but now there's like ideas of, you know, like disaffiliation and, you know, things, things like that, distancing oneself and, and stuff like that. I, I think that recovery is a closer description. If you think about that in terms of like substance abuse recovery, where it's, you know, like a lifelong process and that there are many ways to go about it that, you know, like for some people it's, you know, like that, that everyone's recovery doesn't look the same. Not everyone has to do like 12 steps or whatever, like that there are many different roads to recovery that are very, that are as unique as the people who undertake that. And so I, I do think like that that's a better way of, of thinking about it and also that it's like a process and that it again like that it's lifelong i have to be ever vigilant about how i interacting with things am i Am I interacting with them in a very dogmatic way? <laughs> am I embracing complexity? You know, am I, you know, am I giving into, you know, simplicity or whatever? Just, you know, like I have to be vigilant all the time that when I left violent white supremacy, you know, like within a few years, it was like, I was a v- incre- like, I was super, duper, duper, like traditionally Catholic. Like I was like, a, you know, I wasn't like schismatic. I wasn't like, you know, you know. SSPX or anything, but I mean, like, I was very, like, I was very, very traditional Catholic. And and then, like, in the midst of all that, too, that it was just, like, I was, you know, like, super or like crunchy parent, whereas like, you know, like, not that there's anything inherently wrong with any, like, any of this stuff, but the way I utilized it in my life was bad. That it was like, you know, I was like cloth diapered, you know, only breastfed, you know, did like all this stuff or whatever, you know, like very crunchy, like parenting communities and stuff, very like alternate, you know, alternate health and medicine stuff. And it was like, so these things like you know, it's now, like now I look back and I'm like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Like I get, I totally get what's going on there. And I like, I see how these, these things are, are related. I write like a super short piece about that in my Patreon and about, you know, like looking at these, looking at those things and like how they're, they're the same. And so for me, it's like, I have to look at that all of the time in my life. I have to continue to try to like, gain more healing, learn better skills, be open to learning new things, continue to like continually like face my fears, insist on trying to stay really connected with with other people. My current journey is like trying to figure out how to feel my feelings and feel them like in my body and bridge the disconnect from my brain and my body. Cause it's something that I just super don't, I. I a huge struggle for me and you know and so for me like I again like I do think and a healing is just you know like healing is one of those things too where it's so incredibly not linear and and so this idea of like just that it's lifelong and it doesn't necessarily look the same for everyone but they're just like in other recovery it's like there are predictable sorts of patterns where most people when they first like are just like okay I'm done with this that they're in that state that I was in when I was still living in that household, it was like, I was, I did not, I was not ready to like deal with the trauma. I certainly didn't understand like the shame that I needed to process or have the skills or tools, you know, it's like all the conditions and all the things that led me to embracing violent white supremacy in the first place. Like those they were all still there in my life. And they were all just, they all still needed to be dealt with a lot of people when they leave that they want to immediately start helping other people, which is beautiful, right? Like that. You're just like, I don't want people to like be hurt the way like I hurt and hurt other people. Right. So like, like that's a beautiful gesture, but it is also to me and my, the way that I think about it is incredibly misplaced that it's so they don't have to sit in the void of these like couple of years, usually where it's like, you just like, you're, super unhealed and you don't even understand like the sickness or whatever that you have, like you, there's no way that you have even begun to process the shame of the hurt that you caused or the harm that you did. Like, and so like, I don't know, in 12 step programs, for example, it's like amends making is step nine, right? <laughs> like and then there's all these, there's eight steps that come before like making meaningful amends. Right. And so a lot of people really want to skip over that stuff because it's unseen. It's unlauded. Nobody is like patting you on the back and they probably shouldn't be like you, you know, your ego isn't getting stroked. Like, you know, and that's, you know, for me, like that's where people like me or like, you know, a, a therapist or, you know, somebody that can have that like unconditional, like positive regard for you while you're processing that stuff is very, very useful during, during that time, during that interim time, like right when you leave. And, you know, and it's like anyone who's ever, you know, stopped, you know, who has overcome an addiction or has tried to like fix a bad habit or whatever. It's like, you know, we all know that it's like the tendency, if we're not aware of it is to fill that thing with some other thing. (laughs) Right. And so learning how to be more intentional, intentional about what we fill that void with and filling it with, you know, very like positive life building things rather than, you know, crappy relationships or, you know, or other addictions or, you know, or whatever that, that to me, like that, that is something to be incredibly hyper vigilant on. And I don't know that, I mean, for me as like what I do, I don't know that I need to have a specific like end, like this person is is done or whatever by this point or whatever like i i because i you know it's like i'm not working for the government or for like an agency or whatever it's like i'm just mentoring people and most of that is like community funded thank you everyone who subscribes to my patreon that i don't really have to have an end like where i'm just like okay that person like the the file gets closed on them now i can say they're they're done and you know, for me, it's like, you know, harm reduction immediately. Like, how can I get you to stop committing like acts of violence, whether that's like online violence or like real world violence, like step one triage, like violence is the number one, like concern that, that I have like cease and desist your violence, you know, and then it's like, and then we can like move further and further away from that. But yeah, so hopefully that, <laughs> hopefully that answered that question.
1: That's perfect. I think you were starting to answer my next question, which is how do you start conversations with folks that are, in, are that are, are stuck in help, not helpful, hateful spaces? Because like I find intre- like kind of implied in what you said was that if they're still devoted to violence, then that almost seems like a non-starter, that they have to stop violence and want to be on the path of recovery. So for you as, as kind of somebody who's very much involved in this, where do you start? Where's that starting point?
0: I mean, some of it's just, you know, like as opportunities present or whatever. I mean, for me, the main thing, the main thing for me is just treating people like they're fully human, right? Even if they're engaged in terrible, awful stuff, they're still a human who is engaged in terrible, awful stuff. And, you know, Keeping for me like keeping that forefront in all of my interactions is super key. Now, I mean, sometimes that humanity is also you know, like (laughs) it comes out and being willing to like you know, throw down like sarcastic jokes and stuff, you know, but but I mean, people connect to that too, right? Like, I don't know, some of my backstory too is like I've been a bartender for like 15 years, so I literally. I I can talk to anyone, anyway, anyone who has ever hung out at a bar with me will know that if you leave to like, go get, grab a phone call for five minutes, by the time you come back, I'm almost 100% sure to know, like the people around me, they're like life story. <laughs> like, I'll know like where you want to go. <laughs> like, oh, you want to move to either Dubai or San Francisco? Like, okay. Like within like five minutes. Like this is it's just it is a it is a skill set that I have to connect deeply with people quickly and you know, like get them to talk about things that they otherwise wouldn't really talk about <laughs> with anybody. And most of that is just being very authentically me, being very authentically me, who has a very imperfect work in progress and insisting on, you know, being really human and accepting the humanity of, of everybody around me. And so I'm able to sometimes talk to people who otherwise would just be like, no, (laughs) you are, you are my enemy and I'm not going to talk to you. But that being said, it's like, I, you know, I, I also do would I like everyone to cease and desist their terrorism and their violence and their white supremacy and you know their fascism? Absolutely, yes, I would like that to stop <laughs> right now. But realistically, I know that like, that's not going to happen, right? Like so, for me, it's like can I make contact with this person and have this very human interaction, and that like that's really my only goal. Like, I'm not trying to like dissuade them. I'm not trying to like talk them out of what they're doing. Like, I'm just like, I'm just going to meet you as a human to human and like create the sense of like connection if you choose to have that with me. And then if so, it's like, even if people, you know, it's like, you know, I talked to lots of people and it's like, they're not, they're not even remotely close to even, you know, like wanting to like leave or stop what they're doing. But to me, I'm just like, okay, but like, we've made contact. So if they ever need me, like I'm here, you know, like that for me, like that, that's, you know, that that's really my only, my only goal. It's like, let's have this incredibly human interaction. And it's not really my job to like change your mind about what you're doing, but rather to create conditions where should you begin to have doubts or change your mind that you see that there are steps, you know, away from, from your current reality.
1: That's really that's fascinating. Like it just, it the way that you're describing it seems like, you know, it's not you can't describe it as you know black or white, but rather it's just this very intense, ongoing social process. You're bringing you know a person out of one network and kind of trying to you know socialize them in another network or another way of thinking
0: way or yes, I think that but also like to do so like that it has to be like their ascent. And I think, you know, again, like a lot of a lot of like, what I do, like, (laughs) obviously, you know, like the, the bartender stuff. But I mean, I also I have so many kids. Right. And so for me, like, it was incredibly important to me to not be like punitive with my kids or manipulative or like, just be like, you know, like I want to build collaboration with my kids, like, so that we have this like co-empowered power structure insofar as it can ever be, you know, like, you know, in, in, in a family, but it was, you know, like for me, it's like, okay, like I need you to go to bed at this time. Cause I know with all, with my adult brain that we have to get up extra early tomorrow or whatever, but how do, you know, how do, <laughs> as a uh, uh, gamer girl writes, would say like everything is marketing, like parenting is all marketing, right? So like, how do I get you on board and to give your assent without being manipulative and without, you know, like, you know, trying to like bribe you or whatever, how do I get you to give your assent to going to bed early when you, you know, like when you're like super resistant to that or whatever, you know? And so it's like, I mean, now think about like, in terms of parenting and parenting the as many kids as I have, like how many of those interactions that I have had, you know? And it's like, sometimes it means that I have to change my point of view. Sometimes it means I have to say, oh, I was wrong. Sometimes it means have to, you know, I have to just be like, okay, well, You know, like, please remember tomorrow that we had this conversation. And when I have, you know, when I wake you up because we have to leave or whatever, remember that we had this conversation. And then the next time that this comes up, you know, I'll just be like, Hey, remember that last time? And you were really wiped out or whatever. You know, that's sort of like that, that is something that is, has been like hyper informative in my life too. Because for me, the idea of stripping somebody of their humanity by, you know, by, removing their agency is completely antithetical to what <laughs> trying to trying to empower someone to actually like have more and like pro social agency in their life. And so like I mean again like I it's all of all of that is like a very highly attenuated skill set that I personally have. So I don't know how to make that scalable necessarily other than to try to you know tr- sorts of things for, you know, people who are in other people's lives, you know, and, and, you know, psychosocial support people, you know, and family members and and stuff like that.
1: Interesting. So there's been a kind of a question that I've been kind of grappling with, and that can be best thought of, like, how to keep young people away from extremist material. So young people, or as a parent, their kids. Mostly because this ha- this has come up a lot. Like I, I'm on TikTok, right? So that's kind of obvious. I'm a very online guy, everybody. Anybody who <laughs> interacts with me kind of knows that. But something like really scary that I've run into TikTok is extremist material or the material that I know is is kind of extremist and kind of designed I don't know if grooming is the right word but kind of nudging, you know, people that don't know yeah. better. And as as you know like TikTok is is largely marketed towards like teens and and people in their like lower 20s. So when when it comes to like young people, when it comes to children, you know what what is the advice? What is the approach for parents and mentors? Like is it just like, you know, hey, yo, you're looking at like Nazi content or you're looking at neo-fascist content, just knock it off. Or is it, or is the approach kind of more subtle and more engaging? You know, what is it like?
0: So your first, the first way you phrased that question was, how do you keep this stuff from your kids? And you can't, you just, like, to me, like you, as parents should just accept that their kid's Absolutely, positively, are going to see racist and anti Semitic and conspiratorial comments and content online. They just are. They just are. And they're going to see it way before you ever think they are. You know, like, so just like you would teach them about, you know, not putting their fingers in outlets, just like you would teach them how to cross the road safely, you know, all of these things that we take as you know a given that we need to teach our kids to keep them safe in the environments in which we live like accept that this is one of those and like to me like that's the biggest hurdle <clears throat> is getting people to actually believe that their kids are in danger and if you couple that with you know, this idea of multitudinous layers of trauma. And you remember we've been in a two-year pandemic (laughs) with all kinds of stuff happening. Like this is like super high danger. Like even if your kids are really young. So just accept that it's there. My dream intervention would be some kind of super cool tool that like has researchers, you know, fully very well-paid research to have like an ongoing database where you could like drop the meme in, or you could drop the, you know, the TikTok video and be like, I know something isn't right with this, but tell me what, you know, cause like the databases that are out there, you know, like the, like hate symbols stuff, like it's most of it's not relevant anymore. Like, it, you know, it's like, there are still numbers that mean, you know, terrible things and stuff like that. And some of that stuff will never change. But like, as far as like the memes that are out there right now or whatever, it's like, no, and it's, and it's always emerging, right? Like, I don't, I, you know, like, I don't know. You see symbols on your kids or on their friends, you know, contact information. It's like, okay, well, what does that red rose mean? What does that pine tree mean? What, is that, what does that mean? Or whatever that I would love. That is like my sort of like dream intervention. I do not have the tech skills to build that, but I like, I would love that. And I would use it all the time. And I think, I think my kids would as well. For me with my kids, I mean, we just have ongoing conversations and I show up. Anywhere that they invite me to be in their space, right? Like, if they want me on their, you know, on their Snapchat, I'm on their Snapchat. Like, I'm the world's worst, like, Snapchat user. Or, like, I hate it. Luckily, most of my kids hate it now, too. So, (laughs) I'm I'm glad about that. But, like, if you invite me into your video game, I will be there. I am the worst video game player possibly ever. But I will be there because you are inviting me into your space. And then we can talk about things that you know like that you are seeing or doing or how your game is going. You know, I don't know. One of my kids just told me that there was like a whole like Minecraft library that they made, like where there's like all these like books that are banned throughout the world and they, but they can't ban like they can't ban them in like figure out how to get to them like in the game. So like cool stuff like that too, right? <clears throat> but in you know in I don't know. I had a friend who when her kids were younger was just like they're not allowed to text me when they're in the house or whatever. Like, and for me, I'm just kind of like, I don't care if you're talking to me. I don't care if you're literally sitting on my And you're texting me. Like I will meet you and talk to you wherever and however you want to. Like for me, the like staying connected and being like, I don't have to pretend like I'm an expert on everything that they're doing or whatever. It's like, in fact, that would be bad. Like, I just have to be authentic and allow myself to like be vulnerable and be awed by the things that they're doing instead of just being like, well, it was more stupid or whatever. I'm like, oh, well, tell me more about that or whatever. Like that's, you know, like, why do you, why do you like that? Why do you like that content? Like, why, why is this something that made you laugh or whatever? Just like having those ongoing conversations. And then for me too, like I'm me. So I'm just like, yeah. So I noticed you've been posting a lot of stuff about, you know, like, reading, you know, reading some like new age stuff and like Eckhart Tolle and stuff. And I'm just like, are you like watching some of that stuff on TikTok And like, how'd you, how'd you get to know about this? How is this in your orbit? You know? And, and then just being like, okay, well just know like that a lot of that stuff is also super infiltrated and overlapping with like esoteric, like Hitlerism and like really bad stuff. And that, that would be like for my older kids you know, for my younger kids, I'm just like, okay, well, let's talk about stuff that shows up like in game, you know, as graffiti or whatever, like what's the, you know, what's the worst stuff that that you've seen and just having like an ongoing conversation and letting them know like that this danger is out there and that people are, you know, like that they're targeting them when they're feeling, like they're looking for people who feel alienated and alone and hopeless and, you know, like that the world is just, you know, terrible, which a whole lot of people feel right. Now. <laughs> a whole lot of people, especially young people like feel so much of that right now and looking for that manipulative content and like, and, you know, trying for me, it's a lot of it is teaching them that everything is marketing. I'm like that they're, you know, everything you interact with online is marketing and it may not be marketing for a product necessarily, but it is definitely like marketing for your attention and marketing ideas and, you know, and, and things like that. And so teaching them like how, just like, I don't know, I taught them how to like identify, like, how they're being marketed to in like the grocery store or whatever. For me, it's like, well, like, let's talk, like, let's look at how you're being marketed to, you know, by advertisers and by manipulative content. And then also, you know, the antidote is really like deal with trauma as it comes, like holistically, like help your children to process trauma, process your own trauma, be an ongoing work in progress. Um, Teach your kids and yourself healthy emotional skills, communication skills, relationship skills, you know, like build healthy, empowered, co-empowered relationships with your children. Do not, you know, be coercive <laughs> in in the way that you parent or whatever. It's like, think about the ways that, you know these bad spaces operate and like, don't do that. Like, don't, don't embrace that as part of your parenting. Do the, do the opposite of, of the things that yield to people who end up being incredibly vulnerable to being susceptible to finding resonance with violence and dehumanizing worldviews.
1: That's really good advice. And I kind of want to extend that further and, and ask you, you know, how do we, how, as an average person, because you're, you're exceptionally talented, you have, you know, a history, you know, in extremism coming out of it, and then, you know, these incredible social skills, um, but for an average person, right, I even know at the top of the show, I kind of mentioned, like, this is, this show is, you know, almost, as, you know, acting as advice for me, As somebody who has people who have subscribed to extremist ideas, you know, Q, anti-vax, I think in one iteration, like Stop the Steal. And, you know, in my personal life, I have just been so frustrated with folks who have have started believing this stuff. And I kind of, I didn't cut them out of my life. I kind of just walked away. I was like, I'm not going to engage this. This is obviously like malarkey. And now kind of looking back, it was very much you know in in my own analysis the wrong move and so in in a kind of meandering way that's leading to the question of you know what advice do you have for like an average person like what like when faced with the circumstance of like everyday extremism or everyday you know extreme beliefs like what what do you do like obviously like it, it, it you know the, the solution is obvious if they're going to go commit violence but in you know, 95% of the time, they're not committing violence. They're, you know, at the computer, you know, looking at QC for whatever, but what does an average person do when faced with that?
0: Well, I think, you know, the very first thing that, that we have to do is decide what our boundaries are and what we are willing to engage with and what is something that we're not willing to engage with, right? Like I am not my, like one of my boundaries is like, I will not accept racist or anti-Semitic uh, or homophobic or transphobic, you know, dehumanizing language, you know? And so for me, it's like, I, if that happens in a conversation, I will, you know, verbally like set that boundary. If it happens again, then I'm just like, okay, like I'm, I'm done talking to you for now. But if you have to enforce those boundaries that you set, then it's super important to follow back up to try to reconnect, right? Like not to just be like, okay, forget that or whatever. Like that that follow up of like, no, I'm gonna go follow up. You know, like at you know after time has passed or whatever. But I think a lot of people don't do they don't examine their boundaries first, or they don't necessarily know them until they happen. But then you know it's like we're we're not super good at doing that. <laughs> so, I think that that is a very that that is a a crucial step in the beginning is to really examine what your boundaries are, communicate that in um in a non-confrontational way and then enforce that boundary and do, you know, follow through. Like you know, people, a lot of times will set boundaries and then they want to get their one last point in or whatever. And it's like, okay, well you just like completely blew through, they blew through your boundary. And now you have to, because you did not, you did not maintain the boundary that you set. So, you know, you can't help, you know, it's, it's very difficult to help other people. If you are just a disaster, if you are a wreck or if you feel like, you know, if you feel like you're now on the defensive or whatever, So that to me is like step one. And I think a lot, you know, I think that that is, is important. And for some people that might mean that they do physically need to like have that person like not in their life or whatever. That I think also to remember that you are very, very, very unlikely to argue somebody out of their point of view that like I just had an interaction with my dad not, not so long ago, like just a few days ago in which like, I, like he, you know, at my, throughout my childhood, he would give me science news and national geographic magazines with like little yellow post-it notes, like all stuck throughout them for things he thought I would like, you know, would be interested in reading and, and looking at and stuff. And so, and he's an engineer, he was an engineer and You know, and so like, for me, like, I know, I know that coming from where he is from that data matters to him. And he like said some crazy, crazy racist shit. And I was like, you know, like, all right, like that isn't true, but like, can you talk to me about why you believe that? Like, why, what do you think, what do you think that that serves in your life to believe that? And then I was able to ask him, like, are you open to more data? right? Like if you, because he is him, he was like, yeah, okay. Like, you know, cause I'm just like, there's, there's data. And, but in order, before I could do that, I had to ask if he, what he accepted as credible sources, you know, like, do you feel like for you is the world health organization, a credible source? is NPR a credible source to you? Like, so as I was like drawing my information, I was just like, because there's no point in me sharing anything if they're just like, oh, well, you know, (laughs) like, you know, that, that if they don't see that as a credible source of information, but I was also not trying to change his mind. I was, you know, like, I was just kind of like, okay, like, are you open to more information and possibly, you know, like more data so that you just have more information to like come to a conclusion? I was not trying to make him come to the conclusion that I wanted, but I was trying to just, you know, in inject complexity. And, and that was actually, it was a very good interaction but i did also keep coming back to like well what does it serve you to believe that in your life like what do you feel like that that gives you so not just arguing on this like fact level but like understanding that people hold the beliefs that they have because they serve a purpose in their life most of the time they're they're very emotional purposes a lot of times they are very close to a lot of our own like fears. And, you know, it's like, I'm afraid for my family or I'm afraid, you know, like, I'm not going to have everything that, you know, that I want to have to give to my kids or like those like real root fears often are identical to our own root fears. And to me, like that, that's a place to meet at, right? Like we can meet there, our humanity exists in that brokenness together, like those fears and the things that we desire, like you know it's like all that is like so incredibly shared what like uh, between us, right, and so it's like you can anchor that can be an anchor point, so that as someone is saying absolutely like dehumanizing or inhuman things or whatever like that in, like if you're just like, oh my gosh, this is, like, this is so upsetting and I'm so, you know, like, I hate them or whatever. It's like you can hang on to, you know, that part of their humanness and you can almost always connect there right like but don't do that if it's not safe for you to do so this is also like if you are like the target or victim of somebody's like hate or vitriol like also just like super not your job to like put yourself in harm's way you know like just making sure that like that has there but i think too like one of the things for me and why i am able to talk to a lot of people is that like i Remain curious, um, curious about the world, curious about people, why people do the things that they do. Like, I'm just you know, I try to like maintain my curiosity about the world and I really, really embrace like wonder and awe, right? Like, I can, you know, I'm going to still cry over the stars. <laughs> I still cry over the moon. I still, you know, like got down on the ground last night while I was taking a walk because there was a little frog or whatever. It has like a 47 year old woman, you know, like I'm there laying on the sidewalk to like talk to this frog or whatever, which, so <clears throat> the reason that I bring that up though, is that it's like, it, it becomes so easy to not, you know, to want to argue people out of the stuff that they are rather and what they really need is this reconnection to like that stuff. Like, you know, to me, like maintaining connection with somebody outside of the echo chamber where they are existing, like that is like, if you're just like, Hey, like I saw this thing and I thought of you, or I I read this joke and it made me laugh or like, Hey, like, you know, we're going to have some people over for dinner. Do you, do you want to come, you know, like, whatever, whatever your comfort level is, or like, we're going to go for a hike for me. I'd like to take everybody to the woods, <laughs> just come to the woods and like, you know, come, come stare at the stars and be in a river with, you know, but it's, you're part of this is like, you're trying to help them rehumanize more so than you're trying to get them to believe certain things. And to me, like that, that is kind of that approach. And so part of that work for us individually is to live deeply human lives and really, really embrace our humanity. That was a very rambling answer. <laughs> I believe that actually answered the question that you had.
1: No, that's that's perfect. That really touched on a lot of things. I, I think we, we've we covered a lot in today's show and we've kind of approached the end and like kind of per tradition. Our last question is is all about you. So it's what you think as the expert, as the speaker, that we as the audience should leave this show. You know, something to think about, something to, to question, but, you know, something that just leaves the audience with, you know, Something to study or think about, really.
0: I guess. Wait, I have a question for you. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite soup?
1: Favorite soup. This is gonna sound really like kind of weird and stupid, but it's always been either the Panera chicken soup in the bread bowl or the Boston market chicken tortilla. Like I I I don't know why. Like I I am a pretty good, like I, you know, during COVID, I've kind of become a better chef. But it's just something about Panera and something about Boston Market. Just,
0: nice, just, nice, um,
1: nice. I, I, There's I an ongoing
0: on yeah, uh, the ongoing joke because that soup is my love language. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, I gotta find out. But while I have the opportunity, I need to find out what your favorite soups are. <laughs> At least now I know what to send you if you're if you're ever sick. Oh Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and i guess i have one more question too two because one the second part of question two only applies if you give you if you say yes to the first part is do you drink alcohol
1: do i drink alcohol um i think with covid i've reduced it a lot like it's you don't haven't been able (laughs) to well
0: mine's gone totally the other way
1: (laughs) um well there's there's like Kind of like two parts to it. I, I've i reduced my drinking because we can't really go to bars and like like socialize, but at the same time, I've become I've tried to level up my bartending skills. Yeah, because my partner is a social worker and it's just like, oh, she gets to witness the collapse of society during <laughs> COVID. Cool. <laughs> um, so like yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just like I will learn how to make palomas and and gin and tonics and nice. Have, evaluate whiskey.
0: My question is when you go out to a bar, I guess it's going to be a two-part question. When you go out to a bar or out to like out to a meal or whatever, like what, what are you ordering? What's, do you have a standard drink order? That's like your, this
1: is going to sound embarrassing, but it's whatever is like the fruitiest most. So like, um, like the joke that I make about myself is like, if it's in a pineapple with a (laughs) straw and an umbrella, that's uh, what I want. That's what I want. Uh, <laughs> I, I like. I don't really do, like do well with the taste of hard liquor. Yeah. Like the, I think like my favorite story is that my partner and I went to a hipster bar, like a really fancy. She ordered a Manhattan, and I ordered like like something that came <laughs> in a coconut. Um, and, and then this, pool, the waitress comes out. She looks at me. She looks at the Manhattan. Looks at me and is like, "Oh, here's your drink." And then she gives the the coconut to Blair and I was just like no 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 it's flip it and, it was, <laughs> and she just like stared at me like, like what's wrong with you like I
0: mean, bartenders are judging all y'all's drinks all the time That's We are totally. My, weird. <laughs> I, supposed to I love here? that that is fantastic <laughs> I freaking love that uh, that yeah. is hilarious all right well so thank you for letting me ask my questions and I guess like you know, the thing to like walk away with or whatever is, I don't know, look, I just bartended you. Like I just got I just got you to give me like really personal information about, about what you do. But you know, like it's be authentic and be willing to be vulnerable. And that like if we interact with one another based on the belief that we are all deeply human and we're all struggling that you like we will be able to have much more difficult conversations embrace complexity examine your life for dogmatic thinking and worldviews of your own and see if that what need that is maybe like hitting for you in your life in terms of kids and keeping them safe like that just assume that this is very real it is a threat that they will encounter and just start doing the best you can it doesn't even matter If you do like the right things necessarily, like just keep trying, you know, like just it's okay to fail and be like, okay, well, that didn't work and go back and just be like, wow, guys, like that was a terrible mistake. (laughs) Let's, let's try again or whatever. Just try, just try and stay connected with them. And just, you know, accept that this threat is very real and is not going away. Anytime soon. And it's, you know, in my, in my view is actually probably about to get worse, not better. And if, I guess for also for people who have kids, like, please, please just accept that the last couple of years have almost definitely been trauma inducing. For your kids. So, like, look up some resources for helping children process trauma healthfully. That just like with like ACE scores, that there are things called PACE scores that are these sort of like preventative measures that are in people's lives that keep them from experiencing these like toxic and debilitating effects of of traumatic stress. So, look up some resources about, you know, about helping people process the the traumas and stresses in their lives so that they don't have to suffer through the toxicity um, of that. And look, you know, look to all these different things to compensate or cope with, with the fact that, that this is in their life, you know, and I don't know, just dismantle white supremacy, dismantle fascism, love each other a whole, whole, whole lot. And like every second of every day we got here is like a chance to love real big.
1: That's all I got. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. That was Shannon Martinez. Don't forget, I, I forgot to mention this at the top of the show, but I'll have a note in the show descri- description, give to the, the Patreon. We'll have a link to that. Follow her on Twitter, whatever you can, supportive and, and positive. Um, they, they... <laughs> but
0: buckle up. My Twitter's often like a whole thing. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah so buckle up for sure
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for being on the show
0: well thank you so much for having me i hope i hope it is of use and value both to you and and anyone who listens and if you have follow-up questions just you know shoot them shoot them to me on dms on twitter or you know however and i will try really hard to to get back to you if, if if you have further questions uh that come up after this